All right, everyone, welcome to the podcast. Let's jump right in to the topics we have a lot to talk about today. Right, and today we have, I think, some really exciting, maybe a little bit controversial topics. They're really gonna hit home for me, I think. <laughs> so I'm pretty excited to kind of go on the deep dive, and I wanna hear what Dr. Shaw has to say about some of these things. Yes, uh, I think, you know, we have differing opinions on a lot of these things. So I think it will be interesting to see where you land on this. Of course, with this pod where, you know, we're completely unhinged, not rehearsed at all. So I have no idea where he's going to land on this. We have a couple topics that we both pulled that we want to walk through and um, we'll see where we both align on these. So first up, okay, is a article. This is coming from JAMA Dermatology, I believe, um, about natural skincare products and the allergens that we find in them. Do you want to summarize the article real quick? Yeah. So there was a there was an actual, what do you call it? Not a study, but an article just talking about how this idea of natural being safer has really come to the forefront, is really just taking, uh, it's a billion dollar industry that's just really helped. People are making decisions off of it. I guess I should say, I should say that. They see the word natural, they see the word clean, and they're trusting those brands more. But then the article was basically taking a little bit from the study saying that you know what even though they say natural and clean it doesn't mean that they're safer especially when it comes to contact allergens and then the article then the study itself actually talked about well we took a look at different stores i think it was walgreens whole foods and target and they just took a look at all of their skincare products this was done out of stanford and then they look, took a look at the ingredients, and then they just determined what were the most common problematic ingredients. Mostly, they were all natural, and they were mostly allergens. Right. So basically, this is the article coming out of JAMA Dermatology, published September 14th, 2022, Prevalence of Contact Allergens in Natural Skincare Products from U.S. Commercial Retailers. So, you know, so this is one of the things, um, and I think that a lot of dermatologists have spoken about this on social media, um, but it doesn't somehow penetrate into your average consumer. Um, and it's basically this idea that things that are natural are somehow safer because they exist on this planet in some type of natural capacity. And, and you know, I think even all of us sort of feel that way when we see foods, right? Like if you go to a place and it's like, oh, this is a natural food store, we sort of assume that that means somehow it's healthier than McDonald's, right? Like we make this assumption that the natural food store is somehow healthier, right? And because it, it gives us a sense of like, oh, this must be good for you because it's natural. And the truth is actually, even when it comes to health foods, we have no idea. We have no clue whether or not those foods are actually going to be healthier for us or that they're not, you know, you know, cooked in something that's terrible for you, right? Now, a lot of times with food, it's a little bit more transparent. But when it comes to skincare ingredients specifically, I think that most people feel, how do you feel when you see the word natural? Does it give you a sense of, of safety? I think it probably does very subconsciously. And then actually, I was going to ask you something similar in that, you know, what, what does it move you when you hear a brand come at you with a natural product? Because I think when people ask me about that, what I think about natural skincare, I actually kind of I'm neutral. Like I, I don't let it move. The, I try not to let it move the needle positively or negatively because a natural ingredient in my mind is still an ingredient has a similar potential, good or bad, as any other ingredient. Yeah, you know, for me, um, it doesn't move me in any general direction at all. Um, you know, I don't feel positively towards it. I don't feel negatively towards it. But the truth is that, that natural is actually completely undefined, right? So we have some terms in cosmetics that are regulated, and then we have other terms that are not regulated in any capacity. And when you say something is natural, it, I mean, I could literally take you know, pure petrolatum, uh, you know, your <laughs> Vaseline, which is, you know, comes from refined petroleum or, you know, fuel, uh, and, and call it natural. And, and really like nobody is going to stop me. Right. Cause there, there's no like legal definition of the word natural. So I think that that's the first part of it, right. Is like a, a company can use it in branding regardless of whether or not it's true. So that, that's, that's problem number one. And then problem number two is that just because it's natural doesn't mean that it's safer. And that's what this study was showing from, from Jamba Dermatology. They, they looked at the ingredients in all of these different products that were claimed to be natural. Um, and they found that they were actually high in allergens. Um, all the products contained allergens and oftentimes more allergens than in other skincare products that didn't claim to be natural. So basically what they're saying here is, you're you, like, even though it's saying natural, you're still 
likely to cause it's it could cause allergic reactions in fact it may be more likely to cause allergic reactions right and so i guess a couple things with that too so even though natural is this undefined term i think there's this i think there's almost this accepted gentleman's agreement per se that natural means plant-based i think if you were to pull the mass population and be like oh what's a natural product without naming it i think they would list out plant-based ingredients and that's where it would end so I agree the term is completely unregulated. Even if it was regulated, I don't know if it would change anything because I think there's this unspoken rule that it's a plant-based product. Yeah, I, I think that, that that's the fair assumption, right? <laughs> but that but then, you know, you look at some of the ingredients in these products that are claiming to be natural and, and they contain, you know, purely synthetic chemicals in them as well, right? And mm-hmm. maybe one of the lead ingredients is like a botanical of some sort that comes from a flower. Um, but you know, overall they still are using like preservatives and they're using, um, you know, other emulsifiers in the, in the product that are, are just completely synthetic ingredients. So even then when they say natural, I don't even think that, yeah, I think they may be marketing one ingredient that's natural, but I think overall it's not either a hundred percent natural, or even if it was a hundred percent natural, again, that doesn't mean that it's safer by any means. Um, like for example, you know, I think this, this gives rise to that essential oil market as well, right? Cause you know, essential oils, right, are, you know, derived a lot of times from plants and, you know, they produce a fragrance um, to them. And some of them have some medicinal properties where they do heal different conditions. Um, and they've all been studied in different capacities, you know, from lavender um, to tea tree oil to, you know, all these different things. And some of them, like you are a big fan of tea tree oil, uh, but, you know, still we find that um, a lot of these ingredients do have benefits, but they also do have a lot of allergic potential. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what the I think that's what the whole point of this article is. And I think that's one thing that the general public is missing. And you've already emphasized already, but they just see natural, they think it's safer. But for me, this tea tree oil is, I think, a perfect example because it is a plant-based ingredient. It is also an essential oil. It is also a potent allergen and an irritant. However, it's been studied and has a deliberate purpose. So I find it acceptable for use because it's it has its niche roles but so for me i treat it completely differently than i think the general population does or how i grew up you know i grew up in teacher oil along with some other things <laughs> like colloidal silver or uh grapes fruit seed extract we took that by mouth to kill worms just uh, just a little tidbit there but th- these things were touted almost like cure-alls and i still see that as a prevailing thought amongst the general population is this oh yeah it's natural it does everything for you it's anti-inflammatory which is another whole broad term that means very, very, very little, <laughs> medically speaking. Um, but they can have a deliberate role and some of those essential oils, like you mentioned, really do. Yeah. And, you know, I'm actually, you know, I've always said this, you know, I, I think that especially things that have been passed down from generation to generation, you know, things that like kind of pop up like yesterday, you know, I'm more skeptical about, but things that have been passed down from generation to generation, like you almost have to give the benefit of the doubt and say, you know what, like, if this has lasted two, 300, 400 years, there, there may be something about this that is unquantifiable. And you know what, I'm going to go one step further. Okay. <laughs> and get into a little bit of conspiracy theory here. So I believe, right. So I, 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 I traveled to Egypt this year and, you know, I saw the pyramids and, you know, I think the pyramids, you know, are just, I mean, once you see them in real life, you'll, the scale of this building, these buildings, these three pyramids, the main ones, um, it's just so astronomical and it, it, it's like nothing you've ever seen before. And then to believe that these were built, you know, that long ago, how did they have that engineering capability, right? To be able to build these, like, it's a mystery, right? Like nobody knows. I mean, there's theories, but really nobody knows how the pyramids were built. This is a fact. Okay. Nobody knows who built them. Nobody knows how they were built. I mean, everything is a theory, right? Cause there's no evidence. There was no writing on the walls of the great pyramids. Okay. So that being said, there was some type of wisdom at that time. And, and, you know, people that have studied this building um, from the red quartz to, you know, different things in the building that were impossible to, to like, you know, engineer with what they thought the technology existed at the time. They knew something essentially that we don't know. And, you know, I think that there are a lot of things, a lot of ancient wisdom that, you know, we, we put our sort of Western medicinal minds to, um, and we say, oh, well, you know, it hasn't been shown in JAMA dermatology to be effective. And therefore, um, I'm going to throw it all out. But, you know, I I think there's something about ancient wisdom that, you know, we have to give a little bit of benefit to, I mean, as long as there's no like harm to it, like proven harm, um, in recent times to it, um, then, you know, I think I'm, I'm a little bit, 
I'm a little bit likely to lean towards some of that if it's been around for many, many years. Okay, so I kind of, I, I don't wholeheartedly disagree with you, and <laughs> I don't wholeheartedly agree with you either. So part of my skepticism, and I think we approach the same, same way in that, like, you know, I think, in fact, I think most doctors are. I think doctors are inherently skeptical, especially of new things, um, because we kind of run it through this filter of not only our, like, bachelor's degree, our science degrees, our medical degree, our clinical experience, but then also, yeah, the whole idea that it has to be scientific, which means reproducible and, like, validated. But I'm particularly skeptical, I think, because of the naturopathic world I grew up in, where I'm actually finding that there are small studies to support just about everything, and it makes everything somewhat justifiable. And it's very difficult, I think, for people to kind of sift through, well, this study said this, or this small study said this, this small study said this. And we talked about this before, like rosemary oil versus minoxidil for hair loss. That's like a perfect example in my mind. There's a study showing they're comparable. Um, and that's why I think for me, I may be a little bit more critical of some of these older things that have almost no data and there's nothing kind of showing that they're reproducible. Um, so I'd be slower to jump on that bandwagon, but also, also Dr. Sean, I worked in the same geographical part of this country for a while. And I'm curious if you've heard of this from any patients or individuals in the area, do you have any thoughts of on speaking out warts? or speaking out the fire? Um, or has that something you came across from any of these patients? Yeah, yeah, you know, I've, I, I've heard, I've heard of this, you know, basically people like meditating warts away, or like, you know, having some type of like witchcraft <laughs> to get warts to go away. No, you know, I, I, I think that's, you know, totally bogus and unfounded, right? Like that, to me, even though because you know, what the problem is with things like warts, and alopecia areata, and other conditions that sort of come and go or are like have an unknown like um like a lot of times get better on their own without treatment you know right. like warts or molluscum contagiosum like th these are conditions that get better on their own and so i'm a little bit more skeptical of any treatment that is touted to to benefit in those conditions because like it could have just gone away like if you did nothing and a lot of times there is no control group um in these studies or in these reported like you know case studies of things like that happening so so something like that i'm like no i don't think so um what do you think yeah it seems unlikely right i mean i definitely am not a believer in speaking out warts but i've heard secondhand from multiple multiple people that it worked for them and but but again i think that's a slippery slope and a danger that i don't accept it is that yeah. secondhand firsthand anecdote but it's extremely convincing for everybody else like in mass yeah and you know what it is you know what i think right like as long as there's no harm being done right like so for example if you wanted to, right, do this, and you, you wanted your wart to go away and you wanted to, and you believed in this somehow, it, first of all, it's not harmful to keep the wart around most of the time, right? So I'd say, okay, well, you know, depending on where it is, um, but if you have like, you know, a plantar wart, you know, it might be a little bit painful. You want to wish it away for a year and it doesn't work, like come to see us, we'll treat it, you know, no harm, no foul. I think th when you start to get wacky is when there is something that is imminently dangerous, right? Like, you know, some type of cancer, right? Like pancreatic cancer. And then you're like, you know, I'm going to actually, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to wish it away or I'm going to, um, you know, take some type of supplement um, that I read about in one study. I think, I think you can do both, right? Like you can say, as long as they're not like interacting negatively, like I could say, well, you know, I really like turmeric and you know, I'm a big turmeric guy. Um, I could say, well, yeah, I can take my turmeric supplement, but I'm also going to take the chemotherapy that has been proven in multiple studies to be effective, right? And I think once you start getting into the world where like there's imminent harm and then you start to like say, well, like, I'm going to like lean into natural ingredients that have been unproven, I think that's when you start to get dangerous. Okay, so yeah, I think that's, very fair, but also very relevant. And so I've seen this firsthand in where they've had cancers. Um, some of them are a bit skeptical of modern medicine. So they also see these naturopaths. And so they've opted out of certain treatments for very aggressive cancers and opted in to um, natural, really just diet-based changes to try to cure their cancer. Um, and I know that's just a small sample size, but I know that people all over the country and world are doing that. And I think the danger is foregoing a potentially effective treatment for maybe scientifically doing very little to nothing. Um, but at the same time, some, some of those cancers and some cancers, there really isn't much that Western medicine has to offer either. And so again, mm -hmm. I think doing both 
often is reasonable. And there are actually a lot more studies now coming out with how does this vitamin dietary supplementation complement or work with or against this either chemotherapy, immune therapy, or modern uh, treatment for skin cancers or cancers in general. Yeah, just, yeah, I I completely agree. And I I think these things can be supplemental to each other, right? Like, I I definitely, like like you mentioned, the minoxidil and rosemary, to give some context, right? There's a study that compares minoxidil or Rogaine, which is uh, the only over-the-counter FDA approved for the treatment of hair loss. And then there's a study comparing it to rosemary oil for the treatment of hair loss, and they were equally as effective. And, you know, maybe the rosemary was less irritating in this study, right? And so then you say, well, it's one study. Like, is that like, like, should I then now change my behaviors? No, like when people come to see me in the office and they ask me like what to go get, I'm not like, (laughs) I got the thing for you. Uh, Forget the minoxidil. I got you on the rosemary. In fact, a lot of times I'll say, um, you know, you know, the the proven treatment here is the 5% minoxidil. Go out and get that. And then they may say like, well, I want something that's a little bit more natural remedy. And I'll say, you know, actually, you know, rosemary is is another option, but I recommend that you do these two things together, right? Like if you're going to do it, um, do them together because you'll get compounded benefit. And so, you know, I'm definitely not against them. And the reason, the other reason why is because a lot of the the things that have, have, have withstood the test of time have come from natural ingredients in the first place, right? So, you know, I always talk about salicylic acid, you know, salicylic acid came from the willow bark tree was then then they realized like you know people were chewing on willow bark their fevers were going away uh for four hours right so they were like oh if you chew on this willow bark tree my fever will go away i chew on this bullet truck this uh this this tree it goes away right they actually thought it was going to be a cure for malaria i think but it only worked for like four hours at a time they didn't understand why right well essentially they were ingesting aspirin um and then later on i think like Bayer, one of the pharmaceutical companies like were able to isolate um acetyl salicylic acid or aspirin from these willow bark trees and then commercialize it. And all of a sudden now you have this medicine, right? And Western medicine is really pushing this. Now, if somebody came along and started chewing on willow bark tree again, we'd be like, oh, this guy's insane, right? So I think that at some point we have to say like, there are things we don't know. Like there are so many things we don't know, especially about medicine. And the more I learn about medicine, the more I realize that we don't know a lot and there's a lot more to learn. And it's so humbling uh, to, to, to study the human body. Um, it's just like, it's such a fascinating, we're fascinating creatures um, from the ground up, the way that our minds work, the way that our bodies work. And I really just think that we need to give a little bit more interest in these natural things. So I'm actually 100% with you in part of that. The humility thing, I think the longer, and we've talked about this before, but the longer I've trained, the longer we train, I think the more humble you become. Because I think the most proud I ever was was probably after my second year of medical school, which is, for those of you who don't know, that's at the end of your academic, purely academic portion. Because I had just ingested thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of, of medical information on paper. And then you get out into the real world and during your clinical studies, your residency and fellowship, everything else, whatever you're like, oh, wow, this is all fairly imprecise and imperfect. And so I think there is a ton of room for learning in any medical community. And I think that I think probiotics are actually a perfect example of how Western medicine, modern medicine has kind of adopted something that started out in the uh, more naturopathic space. Um, Because I grew up on probiotics. And that was like 30 years ago, I think. Um, Probiotics, soy milk, rice milk, almond milk. It's been in buckwheat. It's been interesting to watch what's stuck around and gone in mass as to what I grew up with. And um, but probiotics, it's again, same thing. It's like, oh, this could be helpful. In fact, oftentimes as to how this is helpful for everything. And now we're coming back to a place and like, especially for us as physicians and in Western medicine, it's like, well, this is probiotics. This is how it can be helpful topically in the setting of eczema to outcompete some of the bad bacteria on your skin, maybe internally to try to change the pH and provide a little bit of diversity, which I think is a nuanced thing in itself. Like if you're consuming a million live cultures of one bacteria, is that really promoting like bacterial diversity? I don't know, but (laughs) it could definitely outcompete some pathogenic bacteria, especially on the skin. Yeah. So like, like, like you said, I think that there's still so much for us to learn and I'm open to learning. Right. But you know, most of the time with you know, when people tout natural remedies in exchange of like things that are proven, right? Someone's got really bad acne. I think I see this mostly in the acne space uh, with oh, us yeah. where, you know, you have somebody who has scarring forms of acne and I'm like, and it hurts my soul to like watch these people suffer and come in. And then, you know, and then you have even some of these people making videos online and then you see the comments and someone's like, oh, well do this sort of natural remedy. And I'm like, yeah, like, 
that's great and everything. Uh, but this person's going to have permanent scarring. Like I know the natural course of this condition. And if they, we don't treat it aggressively with therapies that have been proven in the office, then this person is going to have severe scarring. So like, it's not harmless at that point to make those recommendations. So I think that it just sort of needs to be looked at on a case by case basis. But going back to this article that we found here is one, you know, the article showing that natural ingredients are not safer, right? I mean, this is scientific proof that natural products, products that are labeled natural. So to just summarize this in full for everyone as clear as possible, products that are labeled as natural in your stores, when you see them and you hold them, just be aware that there is scientific evidence that these products are no safer than products that are quote unquote, not natural. Okay. So that's, that's number one. Uh, and the number two part of this is that they actually did a, like a sub study, like a study before this 2017 study, also in JAMA dermatology, looking at moisturizers, common moisturizers, and found also again, one, uh, that there is a lot of allergens in common moisturizers. So that's, that's number one. And even, even products that had claimed to be hypoallergenic. So that's, that's another thing. So even when you're out of the natural category and you look at something that's labeled as hypoallergenic, again, a hypoallergenic is not something that is regulated in the sense that we say, okay, if it says hypoallergenic, that doesn't mean that it doesn't even have fragrance, right? Fragrance is the most common allergen in skincare products, right? Still, still maintains today. The most common allergen in skincare products is fragrance. And you'll still have products that are labeled hypoallergenic that have fragrance in them. And that's because they did a study on let's say a hundred people and they tested that product on their skin. And they found that that those that hundred people didn't have allergic reactions. And so they're able to then say, this is a hypoallergenic product. That doesn't mean that if you have an allergy to fragrance that you're not going to react to this product. Right. So, so like, I think that there's a lot of messaging in skincare labeling, not just on the natural side, but even on the dermatologist recommended side, even on the hypoallergenic side, that is a lot of times misleading to consumers who are just trying to make safe and effective purchases for their skin. So it really puts the consumer at the disadvantage here. So with that, then like taking a look from the consumer's perspective, like we already said, you know, you know, fragrance is problematic. It's in both from this recent study, it's in both these clean natural products. And it's also in, it's also the most common allergen in all products, but like how, what are some things I think a consumer could look for that would help them navigate through this nonsense? <laughs> Yeah, I, I I don't know. I don't know. Like, I don't know what they're like, you know, I actually thought, you know, going into this, um, you know, when I was studying that, like, if I saw something like dermatologist recommended, or dermatologist tested, or hypoallergenic, um, that the, these would somehow mean that these products were safer. And they're not like it really needs to be case by case ingredient basis. Um, I think there's a website called skin safe or something like that, where you can like type in a product and it tells you if it has common allergens in it. It's a little bit better, um, but again, like we don't want to like fear monger people out of using products altogether, right? Because even in the study that we're looking at, the highlighted study today that we're talking about, they looked at the, the hundred most common allergens, the one hundred mm -hmm. most common allergens. That's a lot of a lot of ingredients to look at, right? So like just because like you know once you get down to number one hundred, that's a very low percentage of the population that's going to be reacting to that, right? And you still need to use the products, right, to see a benefit to them. So you know ultimately, I would say try to avoid the top five most common allergens, maybe the top 10 most common allergens. And also if you are personally allergic to something, then obviously you want to look at the back of every ingredient list and make sure that, you know, you're not allergic to it. Or you could watch our videos on YouTube. <laughs> so we talk or... about products all the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm going to, here we go. This is, this is it. This is how you go through it. I'm going to just come up with this right now. It's very simple. One, you want to look for a short ingredient list. I think that's actually very helpful. It might be understated, not because all of the ingredients don't have a purpose, but because the longer the list, the more likely you're going to be allergic to something. In fact, there was a pro I was using a lot of products. Should I call it the brand? Should I call it? I used a, a I used a SkinCeuticals, highly reputable brand. Loved most of their products. It was a facial reputable. Mist. Is that good? Bad? Let me Google this. Isn't it reputable? reputable. I, I mean, I could be wrong. <laughs> like, no, no, no. Like, I like I could be saying like I I've been I said disheveled my whole life and not disheveled. <laughs> so I could be wrong. I thought it was reputable. Is it um, reputable? It's, Can we get a tiebreaker? Uh, <laughs> Lou, Lou, can you chime in? It's reputable. 
<laughs> Lou has it as reputable. <laughs> all right. Okay, we got at least at least two for two v one right now. Yeah, but you y'all you all are reading in the the twentieth century. My readings come from the late nineteenth century. The so. old English Oxford. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Luke Maxfield, <laughs> Lord Luke Maxfield over here. Which, yeah. By the way, I also found out you can like buy a plot in Scotland and become officially a lord. That's a whole nother thing. Kind of tempting. Uh, but anyway, short list. You would. I would. Do that. I would. I, don't, I do want to earn it. Anyway. But um, so anyway, but I was, this, there's this facial spray, right? From SkinCeuticals, like good brand. Most people think highly of this brand is quality. As soon as I read the back of the ingredient list, it's like, oh, this is going to be a problem. I don't have allergies. I don't know that I'm allergic to anything uh, except for maybe penicillin. But I sprayed this on my face. Three days later, the worst allergic reaction I've ever had topically in my life. You and had an allergic reaction to something? Yeah, and I don't have sensitive skin. I'm not going to lie. I, I, I feel a little <laughs> bit of redemption here that you have an alert. Because I told you, okay, I'm I'm the I'm the nutty one when it comes to allergens. I'll give you that. Like, I'm the one that's always trying to avoid allergens. I got the sensitive eyelids. I'm always, like, freaking out about fragrance. And he's the one that's all laissez-faire over here. You know, I, oh, all is good. You could put dirt on your face. It will be fine. <laughs> and then he got an allergic reaction. I'm not. I'm not happy about it. I'm a You're little happy. bit, but I am a little bit like told you so right now. Yeah. Well, you know, my perspective. What was in it? Like, tell, tell me like the five, mo- like what were the, what were the allergens that would have, you were, um, you would, or was it just because the list was long? No, it was both. So I think with most pro- of these natural products, and this isn't one of those, but most natural products, you'll start with like the top 10 ingredients and a lot of them will be, look good. There's like, you know, water, glycerin, um, like hyaluronic acid and things like, okay, good. This has a purpose. And then you get to numbers like 10 through, in this case, probably 25 or 30. And you're like, oh, huh, I don't know if this is necessary or if this is helpful. In fact, it could be bad. So here, you know, we've like fragrance, we have linalool, we have, let's see here, a lot of colorants, which I don't know if there's really allergic potential, but they're unnecessary. And then a lot of, lot of, lot of plant-based, plant-based ingredients. Again, just the more plants you use, the more likely you're going to have an allergy to some of them or irritation, in this case, allergy. Yeah, you know, I, I, I agree. So, you know, I actually think this is a controversial opinion actually that that shorter ing- ingredient lists are better um i i would say that for the most part unless the whole list is like you know water plus fragrance right like that that's a short <laughs> ingredient list but it's not a great ingredient list which yeah. there are like fragrant waters that people spray on their face for sure um, to, to be fair um but be, that being said um i i generally agree that that shorter ingredient lists barring any major allergens are better and safer than than longer ingredient lists, and 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 that's just my my personal experience. Even like I can look at a lo- really long ingredient list, and it's got no common allergens that I know to avoid. And those products I have reacted to much more than the shorter ingredient product list. So so I'm sort of on board from that from a um, from a like anecdotal experience. But I, I'd be actually curious to see if there's any studies on the length of ingredient lists versus allergic potential because that would be really interesting yeah it would be um someone needs to put that together and we'll appreciate it if you do so okay length of ingredient list was one we'll say okay maybe we're on the fence with that the second thing fragrance free i am 100 percent with dr shaw on this fragrance free is the most important thing you could do if you have sensitive skin eczema or just wanting to be cautious i have no arguments there do i use fragrant products yes because i haven't had a problem with that i know about my skin although fragrance mix is unquantified qualified you don't know what's in it exactly i've not had a problem with that before so i think that's number two yeah so going into fragrance free you know most of the time i agree you know you say fragrance free that is generally going to be a safer product um than not fragrance free or unscented or scented products um that being said there are some products that do claim fragrance free and are not fragrance free Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they have like some type of aromatic compounds in them that are like doubling as stabilizers or preservatives and they do produce a fragrance and then people do react to them. So it's not completely foolproof, but I would say of, of all the claims you'll see on the front of a package, I would say that fragrance free is probably the most reliable. Okay. Yep. So fragrance free being superior to unscented, I'd say being superior to dermatologist approved, dermatology approved, whatever those variations would be. And then maybe number three, what you could look for is the National Eczema Association Seal of Acceptance, which again, isn't perfect. 
Um, but it does go before a board and they do vet some of these, well, they do vet these products and the ingredients and they screen out some of the more problematic things. Now I've done, I've, I've talked about brands and products that are on this list. Some of them contains allergens. Um, they're not all perfect. They're all not completely as gentle as you could possibly want. But again, if you're looking for three things, that might be the place to start. Yeah. Again, I think I agree with you on that. Most of the time, good products. Most of the time, the people that seek out that seal of approval um, tend to be trying to get that approval of hypoallergenic in general. And so those products tend to you know, have more of that dermatology background in the first place. And so you can almost assume that they're going to be safer. But again, I've also seen like common allergens in those products as well. So, um, you know, I, I think that again, like, you know, there's no like foolproof method um, for you to hang your hat on. Um, but overall, I would say that, you know, I try to limit my recommend my my the recommendations I make, I try to limit the allergic potential as much as possible, you know, barring that I don't think there's a better product in that price range. And there's so many other things that are to consider here. Um, for example, like, you know, Nizerol shampoo, um, I recommend all the time. It's got fragrance in it. There is no competitive product on the market that that doesn't have fragrance. So, you know, there it, there's just several other examples I can give you of this where there's products with fragrance that are great or products with common allergens that are great um, and you can't avoid them. But I try to limit it because it sucks when you when you have an allergic reaction It sets you back months, weeks in your routine. You can't use other products. You don't know what caused it. You have to throw out, you know, maybe more than one product because you don't know which one triggered it. Um, and it's frustrating, I think, for everybody that it happens to and probably frustrating when it finally happened to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. Um next though i think so anything else on the natural you want to talk about i know we're going to transition into something here too no all right so moving on to facial massage right so facial massage if if you haven't seen a video on this there are plenty out there just look it up the the theory behind this is that through movements either with your hands or a tool called a gua sha tool which is not it all used as it was historically to move and manipulate the skin and soft tissue, you can do almost anything. You can restructure your face, you can restructure your fat, you can restructure sometimes they'll say the bones. Now, there's a very strong following of people who wholeheartedly believe in this. And some of them are kind enough to share some studies with me and say, hey, look, once again, just like I talked about before, there is a published study. There may be two published studies showing this can be helpful. Now, that wasn't enough to move the needle for me. <laughs> Wait a minute. Hang on a second. Let's let's give some context here. Hold on a second. <laughs> Rewind. Okay. So facial massage, right? We've seen it touted. You know, there are actually even in-person places you can go to to get a facial massage now. Um, you know, there are businesses built around facial massage. There are tools that are built around facial massage. A lot of people, you know, moving into this facial massage. You're telling me that that someone tried to convince you that facial massage was good. It was just like another creator, another mm -hmm. dermatologist or? It was a creator. And honestly, I think they were fairly gracious because basically I, I likened what they were doing and promoting as doing absolutely nothing. And they responded with a study. And I was like, well, you know, that was fair. That's a fair comeback. Oh, so you, so nay, hang on a second. This isn't like a friendly, mm -mm. this this was a, you reacted to their video shading them <laughs> and then they responded with the study. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I don't think that's ever happened to me. And I, and I shade people all the time. Maybe nah, I just didn't see the, it. Has it happened? You just don't, you have too many comments. You can't get through all. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, listen. Okay. Okay. So, so we've been provided with the study here and we'll read the name of the study. This is the analysis of morphological changes after facial massage by a novel approach using three-dimensional computed tomography or CT. And this was published in the Skin Research and Technology Journal. Okay. Terrible study, horrible study, okay? I read the study, horrible, horrible. And listen, I'm not, you know, I mean, it's a start. You know, we, we have, first of all, starting out, you know, 12 people in the study. Okay, well, small sample size, okay? Age range, okay, decent, 30 to 54, where you're probably seeing most people doing the um, facial massage. And, you know, they really did do their best to make it scientific here. You know, they have um, before and after photos 
Um, and then they also evaluated with this um, functional, this three-dimensional CT scan of the face to see if there were any changes to the skin after this massage. The reason why I think this is not helpful at all, and you could chime in here and let me know what your thoughts on this are, is because this was done like right after the, the, the massage. So like I've always maintained that like putting ice on your face, um, massaging your face, facial exercise, like clenching your jaw and moving your jaw, like all of those are going to have temporary changes to the face because like they're going to, you know, improve blood flow temporarily. They're going to maybe cause some temporary swelling and edema. Um, maybe they're going to constrict the blood vessels in the case of ice. So, so definitely, definitely long, short-term benefits or maybe short-term changes, let's say, um, short-term changes, um, when you do any of these things, but I don't think there are long-term sustainable benefits to this. See, and that's exactly it. So th that, that was my main problem with this as well. So it, it's very difficult though, I think for the general public, they see something like this and they're like, Hey, it's a study. Like, is this PubMed index? I don't know about this journal. And that's the problem too. There's a lot of small journals that publish it. Like we've published a lot and we know for a fact, there's a lot of journals out there where you pay a lot of money to get your paper published. And so with that comes this kind of overflow of information that's really not well vetted, but appears to be. And I think this falls into that category. Not that this shouldn't be published because I think it's good to start the discussion with this or similar topics. Um, but just like Dr. Shaw, my main problem is like, what was the timing from the facial massage to the imaging? Because no matter what trauma you do for your skin or for your face, if you image right afterwards with a high quality imaging, there are going to be changes it's just, is it a product purely of irritation and inflammation, or is it actually a functional structural change that's beneficial and has lasting effects? Um, so, I, and there are a few other studies I went through after that, you know, just made sure I wasn't missing anything. There was another study with similar, a CT study, um, looking at five people with similar results, um, but that's about it. And so again, I just don't, th it, it, see one thing I think too, even before we come to these clinical studies, it goes through that same filter I talked about before. Like, does this line up with what we know about biology, just human biology? Does this line up with what we know about physiology? And then can it be extrapolated from there into clinical real world data? You know, it, it really has to check all the boxes for me. Yeah, that's really the scientific method um, that we really need to be an analyzing things. That, that was actually, you know, Dr. Kligman who discovered, invented tretinoin, um, had this sort of process about the way that he looked at skincare ingredients. Controversial figure, by the way. Um, we can <laughs> probably talk about him on a future episode. But um, but but Albert Kligman believed that in order to say that a product worked, one, you needed to um, know that it could actually reach the targeted area, right? So like for in, in the case of topicals, it would need to penetrate the skin, right, to be effective. Um, so one, you need to know that it could actually be where it's supposed to be. Um, two, it would need to have a mechanism of action that made sense, right? Like theoretically even, right? Um, you know, the question is, does facial massage have some type of theoretical benefit to the skin? I mean, you know, I, I think in some ways, you know, by helping to move lymphatic fluid, you could help with people that maybe have some puffiness in the morning or something like that. So you, know, you could expect that. But, you know, again, you wouldn't expect any long-term changes to the collagen or anything like this. But that being said, like there needs to be a mechanism. And then the third piece of that was always that there needed to be clinical studies showing that these actually worked. So one, you needed to actually reach the target area. Two, you need to actually have a mechanism that makes sense. And then three, you need to actually have clinical studies that are showing that it actually intent, it, it does what we expect it to do in theory. And so uh, those are the three criteria. And a lot of the things that are recommended don't meet those three criteria. Right, exactly. Which brings us full circle back to the natural thing is that just it's tough for people to, I think, convince me as a doctor of some of the benefits without any of those links in the chain or one of those links in the chain. And this kind of falls in there, too, is just a physical aspect of something that people are promoting widely and the results that really aren't founded. I think that that's fair. Um, again, you know, though, I think, uh, you know, even though I don't think there are tremendous benefits, I, I don't think that these should be in lieu, used in lieu of other things, you know, most of the time not harmful. And, you know, I, I have heard the argument that Gua Sha, um, not, not done correctly when we see it on TikTok, as we discussed, but 
um, you know, apparently there are maybe some scientific literature in other languages that have been published on the benefits of it. And so, you know, I wouldn't, you know, again, throw away um, things that have been around for before we've been alive. Um, but again, you know, I don't expect any miracle changes to the bone uh, by massaging your face. If you have the extra five minutes, 10 minutes, then um, have at it. Yeah, I agree with you too. Interesting about the gua sha literature that I could find is a lot of it's done with like breast fullness, breast milk, um, headaches, which makes some sense. But again, the way they're using this and doing this is fairly aggressive to the point of inducing bruising and purpura and not at all like the like very nice experiential light massage that's been popularized lately. 100% agree. All right. So I think that covers it. Um, Yeah, facial massage. I'm not doing it. You could do it if you want. But uh, let's move on to the next topic here. And this is about putting deodorant all over your body to stop sweating. Is it safe? Can you put deodorant all over your body? So no. I mean, there's a couple inherent problems here. And we see this with people who have hyperhidrosis um, because some people have focal parts of their body where they sweat. Some people just sweat um, overall too much or more than is normal or disruptive to their life. And so the question is, one, what happens if you actually successfully stop sweating all over your whole body? That's problematic in and of itself. And then two comes the idea of ingredients. What if you cover yourself with whatever deodorant you're using over your whole body? What To what extent are you absorbing the ingredients? How much of a problem is that going to be? Um, and I think those are the two main pitfalls that we're going to have to run into here with people who are going to try to do this. Yeah, I actually wanted to... You know, you know, you know, it's so funny. Um, it's not funny, actually. Um, but it um, but I remember growing up and, and this is before the Internet, which which I think people understate, right? Like the idea that now nowadays, like if you say if you say something to me, right, and, I, and I'm kind of skeptical about it, like I just Google it, right? right? Like I'll Google it right away or, you know, like or we use Dr. Google, right, which is like up to date. So, like, if I were skeptical of something, I just can find the information at my fingertips, right? And, and there are so many rumors I remember as a kid believing to be true, and and everybody believed it. And the funny thing about it is that, like, if you talk to people nowadays, like, a rumor that existed in New York where I grew up um, probably existed where you grew up um, in Colorado, right? Yeah. So, so I think <laughs> that being said, uh, it's first of all, interesting how that information traveled. But anyway, going back to this, the reason why I say this is because I was told several times that when I when I, growing up that if you put deodorant all over your body, you'll die. Um, th- th- there were like several stories of a kid or kids who have died um, from putting deodorant all over their body. And there have been a few, believe it or not, and and I don't know like if this is related to them being aerosoled, but like if you look at 2016, Fox News, police found 42 aerosol cans um, in this 16-year-old rooms um, and the the patient was collapsed, you know, the child had died. Um, And I think it was due to butane gas inhalation. So I think that it it wasn't related to the fact that they were putting deodorant all over their body, but the fact that maybe the, the butane from the spray on deodorants actually caused this. But I remember believing that if you didn't sweat, you would die. Um, Though there is some credence to that, though I don't know that there's ever been a case of someone dying from not being able to sweat. But there are conditions, right, where we don't develop our eccrine sweat glands, um, like, like conditions like hypohydrotic ectodermal dysplasia, where essentially you don't develop sweat glands, and then you can overheat and have like heat strokes um, because the function of sweating is to remove heat from the body most of the time. And in in that process, if you're not able to do it and you're out in really high temperature is that you could essentially overheat if you had deodorant all over your body. Um, But, you know, I don't think that you can die from putting deodorant all over your body. Right. So that's the to be fair, antiperspirants, not deodorants. We have to we have to specify the difference between the two. Okay, and that's fair, too. So deodorant is something that masks an odor, covers an odor the antiperspirant is what stops the sweating and that's usually the salt compounds that block those eccrine glands and i guess that's so that's part of it is you know i think when we give medications like glycopyrrolate to people who are sweating excessively it stops the sweating overall from the inside out not it doesn't stop at 100 percent, but with that we're concerned you know hey do you work outside we try to use it judiciously don't put them in situations where they're going to overheat and not be able to sweat 
to control their temperature effectively. So I think in theory, it's possible if you use the antiperspirant all over your body that it could become a problem, especially if done in mass. Uh, you know, I am with you. I'm not sure about the published literature, but also, you know, also while we're talking about this, I, I, I don't know how this didn't occur to me earlier, but why, 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 even in this article, I don't know if it like necessarily addresses that fully. Why was this original creator wanting to put deodorant antiperspirant all, all over their body? Because we don't sweat evenly across all our, our entire body and we don't have odorific areas all over our body. It's unnecessary. Fair enough. So, so, okay, let's, there's a lot to unpack there. Okay. So number one, um, there are people with like generalized hyperhidrosis, like you mentioned that have that, that sweat in a way that it's debilitating, right? Mm-hmm. Like they can't even they, like, it's difficult to function. They sweat so much. They sweat through their clothes. A lot of times, like you said, it's focal where it only affects certain parts of the body, like the hands and the armpits. Um, and those are a little bit easier to spot treat, but for people with, with, whole body hyperhidrosis, you know, the medications that we usually use to treat are systemic medications like your glycopyrrolate. So if you don't have access to oral glycopyrrolate, then you may want to put deodorant all over your body. Sorry, antiperspirants all over your body. I think this is going to be really confusing for people, but antiperspirants, you you may want to put it all over your body if you're sweating excessively. I think the other case that I see this in is 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 almost like a a beauty hack. I don't know if you've seen this one, but people putting deodorant specifically on their face to have their makeup layer better. Have you seen this in any capacity? I have not. No. So I think you know one of the problems is some people sweat um, when they wear makeup, um, and a lot of times deodorants are mattifying, or sorry, mm-hmm. antiperspirants are mattifying. And so if you're able to block your sweat and also mattify, it's almost like a primer for your makeup. Uh, and so I've seen this like sort of touted as a beauty hack. Uh, mm-hmm. One, I think this would clog your pores on your face and could potentially cause acne. I mean, if you have, you know, acnegenic bacteria in your pores, theoretically, um, using these aluminum salts and, and whatnot could potentially contribute. I, I don't know if there's any scientific evidence that that's true. I would be concerned about it. Um, that being said, what could you do? What like What are our options, right, for people that do have sweating either focally, systemically, or just on the face. Right. And so even as doctors, we're kind of limited because of what things are approved for. Um, But there is like a little ladder you can do. And so you can use something like Drysol or aluminum chloride. It's a similar thing. It's just, but it's in a liquid formulation. And so people are encouraged to wipe that on the focal areas, not not bathe in it, but like put it on the focal areas where it's been problematic. There are other topicals that you can use like... um, Cubrexa, which is like a, it's the brand name of a topical form of that oral medication, if that made sense to anybody. So the medication that stops sweating we take by mouth, it's in a topical wipe. It's only improved for the armpits and the axilla, which I think is unfortunate because I find that it's actually very effective and could be more generalizable and helpful for people if it was more widely available. And then from there, there are certain procedures that you could use as well. Um, iontophoresis, I know something Dr. Shaw's talked about before, where you basically put your hands in a solution of electrolytes and zap yourself lightly. I've I've done it. I've tried it. It's not terrible. Um, but again, blocks and slightly uncomfortable, pores. though. I it's will uncomfortable. say it is slightly uncomfortable. <laughs> to, you know, so 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 iontophoresis, you put your hands in water and the, essentially the electricity um, it kind of gives you this really like uh, weird feeling. I mean, I don't know if you get used to it. I just tried it a few times myself before I wanted to recommend it to people. Right. It works though. Like it works. You need several treatments. Those the treatments can be expensive. They have some at home treatments now like Dermadry. I think it's called mm-hmm. Dermadry, um, that you can, um, you can, you know, put your hands in and helps. Right. So, so that's another, another option for people specifically for hands, sometimes for armpits. I, I find that it works better for hands and feet. Um, than than other areas, and then there's Mira Dry, which is a way to like essentially zap away your acrine glands in your armpits, and um, that 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 tends to be really helpful for people specifically in the armpit region. Um, and then Botox, you know, I think Botox is worth mentioning here. Um, Botox um, inhibits the release of acetylcholine, uh, and acetylcholine is what contributes to sweating. So what happens with sweating is your glands release. I mean, your body releases acetylcholine. Acetylcholine acts on the eccrine glands. You start sweating. And so by blocking that acetylcholine transmission, then you can stop your sweating. And so Botox effectively does that. And you can get it in the armpits. You can get it in the hands. It's very painful. You need many treatments to do it. But what I've also noticed is that people, they get Botox in their forehead for wrinkles 
it reduces the sweating to some extent in the forehead. See, and I think that's one nice that it's useful. Two is some there's something called compensatory hyperhidrosis, though, that people struggle with. And it can occur, I think, with any of these things. But um, where you do any of the treatments, it's effective on one area and you sweat more in another area. And so with Botox, I, I don't know why. I feel like I've seen that more with Botox. And it might be because of how effective Botox is at treating hyperhidrosis. But let's say you sweat on your lips and your armpit. You treat your armpits with Botox. You might sweat more off the top of the lip. So it, I think none of these are perfect, but they're all options that can be helpful for a lot of people. All right. So overall, you know, deodorant all over your body. You know, it's probably okay or antiperspirants all over your body, probably okay. Don't recommend it. Um, we do have other treatments for hyperhidrosis, many treatments in dermatology. So seek out your dermatologist if you're looking for any treatments there. Um, otherwise, you know, I, I don't know why you'd want to do this in the first place. Um, next up, all right, this is going to be quick. We're going to summarize the, it's going to be a quick run. This is for Dr. Maxfield, no preparation. I'm going to yell out a skincare trend. And I'll explain it briefly. And then you tell me in one line, no long explanations. Are we keeping this trend going into 2023 or are we trashing this trend? Okay. You ready? All right. right. So first up, um, skinimalism. This is where you're limiting your skincare routine, not 10 steps, but you know, three or four steps. Keeping it or trashing it? Keep, keep. Keeping it. Okay. I agree. Uh, next up is skin taping. Skin taping is where you like tape your face up um, to, to hold it in position. Um, are we keeping this one or are we trashing this one? Trash, definitely. I got so much hate from the brands, the skin taping brands when I roasted this on my Instagram. <laughs> yeah, not good for the skin. I completely agree. Trashing it. Next up is, is menstrual facials. Menstrual fluid facials coming back in hot. Um, what do we thought? Keep it or trash it? I trash it. Yeah, I, I made a video about this and I got a lot of hate, so I'm going to stay quiet on this one, but uh, <laughs> I silently agree with you. Um, so next up is uh, skin cycling. We've talked about it on our YouTube channel. This is this is essentially where you rotate, um, you exfoliate day one, retinoid day two, take two days of a break where you just moisturize, and then you start that cycle over again. Uh, we keeping it or trashing it? I'd say keep ish, but it'll be modified. It's already It's already morphing morphing okay so yeah i agree i think it's a uh, in between we keep it for we keep it for beginners and then we expand from there um so yeah that's an in-betweener and we've we have a much longer video on it if you're interesting and next up you know just because of the time of the year and because it's the most number one search thing in skincare right now slugging uh where you take vaseline as the last step in your skincare routine or any occlusive petrolatum based ointment as the last step in your skincare routine keeping it or trashing it keep keeping it keeping it i love slugging this time i've already sliced slug last night so always keeping the slug all right so that's pretty good uh, let us know if you like that um definitely it's not subscribe to the podcast subscribe to our channel but um enroll in our podcast lou lou what is it it's follow the podcast follow or subscribe to the podcast coming from you everywhere spotify apple wherever you listen to your podcasts we'll be there um see you in the next one we'll see you next time appreciate y'all stay classy san diego